The unit of computation has evolved from on-premise servers to virtual machines in the cloud to containers running on those virtual machines. Serverless computation is another stage in the evolution of computational unit management. With a serverless application, a function call to the cloud spins up a transient container, calls the function on that container, and then spins down the container. Ryan Scott Brown joins the show today to discuss the benefits and the consequences of serverless computing. With containers and VMs, we still have to worry that the resources we are spinning up in the cloud will run without being utilized. Serverless computing gives us more control over these compute resources so that we don't have unused servers that we are paying for. Ryan Scott Brown blogs about serverless architecture at serverlesscode.com. He's also a core committer of Ansible, sorry, a core de- developer of Ansible, working at Red Hat. Ryan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, longtime listener, first time caller. Oh, that's great. Uh, okay, so I recently had an interview with Austin Collins, who runs a company called Serverless that makes a framework called Serverless that is this serverless architecture so we've done a little bit about the serverless concept, um, but because this is kind of a new thing, there are some questions that I asked him that I also want to ask you because maybe you know, the listeners won't find it boring or we might get different answers to the same questions. But the, the question I want to start off with is what is serverless computing? Um, so I think it's actually a confluence of three different trends. Um, you have the thing that people refer to as the serverless framework is centered around AWS Lambda and API Gateway and making web applications or APIs on those those technologies. And so that's one serverless, and the framework uses that name, which can be kind of confusing. Then there's what um, I heard referred to at serverlessconf as serviceful, which is just the idea of using a bunch of different off-the-shelf software as a service or APIs that are provided to you as a service like Algolia, Auth0, things of that nature, to compose those into an application where you're not running any real infrastructure yourself or the infrastructure you are running is pretty trivial. And then the last kind of serverless thing is, or that is being called serverless, is what I consider to be kind of an evolution in billing on the pass model. So if you're familiar with things like Heroku, OpenShift, Things like that. You pay to run a container or a gear or whatever it's called in your service provider of choice. And you pay to run that just by the hour. And in Lambda or Azure Functions or Google Cloud Functions, all of this is paid like per millisecond of execution. And so you manage, you know, much less of the, you have less control over your billing other than how often your thing is called or how often your service is used. Okay, that is a great explanation. Amazon first started talking about this idea of serverless computing with the AWS Lambda service. And you obviously elaborated that serverless is a bigger idea than that. But we should touch on this AWS Lambda service first. So what is AWS Lambda? Yeah, so AWS Lambda is uh, what, what I would call a runtime as a service. So it provides parameters of you know your language of choice uh it comes with some built-in libraries there uh node.js for example comes with node version 4 point something and image magic is installed and the aws sdk is installed and 
to you, it looks like you just upload your code and it magically runs whenever it's triggered. So your, I'm going to call it an application, has basically three parts. You have your code, which is the part that you supply. You have events, which you hook up to your code. And then you have the actual results of your code that are sent back by your function. And so you can call it, you can call Lambda directly via the AWS SDK and get a response back right in your application. So you don't actually even need API gateway. If, for example, you have a mobile app and you want to call some Lambda function, you can call that directly using AWS, actual AWS keys. And so you don't have your own auth backend. You don't have any of that. It's all just in the AWS SDK, and then you're calling your code remotely, and it's running remotely. You mentioned the Amazon API Gateway. This is another aspect of this serverless architecture. The Amazon API Gateway allows developers to set up and maintain these API endpoints. Could you talk more about what is the interaction between the Amazon API Gateway and the Lambda service, and why you need both of these things to have a serverless architecture? Yeah, so... Technically, you don't need both because you could have um, in the in the browser in your JavaScript application. Say you've got a, a a web page that's running, you know, React or Angular or whatever. You can use the AWS JavaScript SDK and make calls straight to the AWS Lambda service and invoke functions directly. Assuming that you can get AWS an AWS set of credentials into the browser through either the Simple Token service or Cognito, which is AWS's auth thing. But uh, to use API Gateway, it's a lot more familiar for developers. And so if you think about your normal life cycle of a request, it goes from your application over HTTP to your application that then your web framework parses that request, like if you're using Express, let's say. It parses that request into a JavaScript object and then hands that object to a function that you've linked up via a route. And this is a little hard to explain without a whiteboard, but in API Gateway, you set up a endpoint, which is a combination of a route and a method. So say slash API and a post method. And then you uh, link up what's called a mapping that takes the parameters from the function in a templating language and puts it into a, a JavaScript uh, JSON that gets passed to your Lambda function eventually. So you have the route that then goes to the mapping that then creates an event that goes to your Lambda function. And then you return another, you know, another object basically using either a callback or the context, just standard returns. Mm-hmm. And that then goes back to what's called a response mapping that is then mapped into either JSON or HTML or whatever content type you've set up there that then goes back out over HTTP. So your Lambda function doesn't receive an HTTP request. It receives this already mapped thing. Okay, I understand. So the the way that Amazon has this set up is that it's, you know, but the typical pattern is this, this Amazon API gateway with Lambda service uh, interaction pattern. But the function call as a service idea, this serverless architecture that we're discussing, it's yeah. not unique to Amazon. It was pioneered by Amazon, but now there's Google Cloud Functions, Azure Cloud Functions, IBM OpenWhisk Actions. So everybody is is getting on board with this idea of serverless computing. So give me an idea of how the interaction patterns are different on these different platforms. 
Uh, yeah, just one quick thing is that uh, Lambda is not the first serverless quote-unquote thing. Um, oh. Firebase is a great example of a serverless thing that has been around for a long time. Because if you think about the use case for Firebase, it gives you the auth. It has special Firebase. I think they call them rules, but they're basically access controls for different data. And they provide a database as a service, and they deal with having WebSockets open and pushing down changes from parts of the data tree. And then there's also Parse, which uh, has been shut down by Facebook or is shutting down. But that was another thing that was you get to write your application and then all the back end is actually handled by parse. So if you look back, you know, two, three, four years ago to anything that used to be labeled, uh, I think mobile back end as a service was the flag that a lot of these were flying under. So it's certainly not the, not the first. Okay. So not the first understood. Yeah. How do these different platforms differ from one another? Um, so there's the, the, the core is, Honestly, pretty simple, the idea that you give code and it runs. But they all have some things that make them kind of unique. Like uh, the IBM OpenWhisk project is actually open source, so you can run your own OpenWhisk, which is pretty cool. And it also supports uh, Swift as one of the runtimes, which is also pretty cool, seeing Swift be a server-side language. And they, uh, they also have great integrations with like their Watson APIs, which are all the machine learning, image processing, all this other stuff. Mm. And the Azure Functions is also an, also open source as a runtime, which is interesting. But they do a really they have a really different take on how events come in. So your function environment gives you things like files. So if your event is a file type of event, whether that's uh, coming in from Dropbox or it's an actual uploaded file or it was attached to the request, that all shows up to your function as actual file handle on disk, which is a great abstraction if you want to move between, okay, well, this works against Dropbox today, and tomorrow I'm going to you know, add support for um, Dropler or uh, Google Drive or some other thing. It, it abstracts that away, so it gives you, uh, makes your code even more portable across kind of service providers. Hmm. And then um, Lambda has the really good integration, obviously, with AWS services because it gets... Uh, AWS credentials baked right in. It works in your VPC. And so they all have kind of provider differences, but the core service is very, very similar. Hmm. So how much can I mix and match these different services? I mean, can, can I... I guess I guess I could just easily do that. I guess I could do a one-to-one mapping between, you know, how whatever API I want to use and the the service that I want to use, the, the cloud provider that I want to use. Yeah, so say that you, uh, I don't know, really love BigQuery, and then your uh, transaction engine for your, for your website is DynamoDB. You could have Lambda functions that are reacting to DynamoDB events, because that's one of the event sources is changes in DynamoDB, kind of like you would have a, a stored procedure in a SQL database. And then as data works its way through your system and gets into BigQuery, where you do a lot of transaction processing and kind of... Uh, or not transaction, sorry, uh, analytics and kind of retroactive queries, you could use Google Cloud Functions because it has better integration with that. And since a lot of your code could actually, as long as you're not um, relying on the specific event format, because they are different between, say, Google and Amazon, but a lot of your code is going to run the same way because it's all Node and you can have that same run, and it's the similar runtime. 
So as long as you've abstracted out the how the event gets there, then all your other code can run the same way. Here we are essentially talking about the increased liquidity that is going to take place, you know, with 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 the serverless architecture, you know, it's it's a movement from having these highly siloed cloud platforms to just you know, by virtue of the cost structure where you can just like pay per use rather than spinning up these long running servers, um, it becomes much easier to have interop between different platforms. And so I kind of want to ease towards a conversation of this bigger picture stuff. And I think one way to start is that for many years, we have been using virtual machines as the unit of computation. And then kind of containers have become the unit of scale since since then. We've transitioned from the virtual machine unit of computation and scale to containers. And now we're going towards this serverless computing paradigm. So for people who are just like maybe, you know, they just let's say they just graduated college and they yeah. don't really know anything about this virtual, they, you know, they've just been doing all their development locally. They don't even know about production virtual machines. They don't know about containers uh, and they certainly don't know about serverless. Could you maybe paint us a brief timeline for how and why these different paradigms have evolved and how we have gotten to this serverless world? Um, yeah, so... You can sort of, I mean, if you look at the very broadest history of computing, it's gone from, at the very beginning, there was no interconnection and computers were very expensive. So you had a physical wire between your terminal and the mainframe to compute got less expensive, but bandwidth was still very expensive. And that meant that you were still very much in this mainframe model where you would have a low you know, a very low bandwidth connection to this mainframe. And then as compute became cheaper per unit, uh, you had the PC revolution where everything became PCs, but bandwidth was still really bad. And then bandwidth got a lot better and we were all about client server. And you can look at this as kind of another, another uh, step there because now bandwidth is also really cheap. And so you can do even more remotely. You can have even richer applications running somewhere else. And so serverless is sort of a step from, it used to be that the virtual machine, like you said, was the unit of deployment, say, and then it got smaller with a container. So you want, cause you wanted to raise your utilization and then, um, serverless is not, you don't want to raise your utilization. You want to reduce your costs so that you're only paying when you're delivering real value. So for example, if you have a website that you have a server on, whatever hosting provider that's running 24 seven, whether or not someone's on your website, you're paying. But if you have a system with Lambda, for example, you're paying only when someone views the page and does an action to get value. And so your margins get, uh, are very, become very different because you don't have to have these base fixed costs. So what the cloud did to kind of uh, CapEx versus OpEx, where you would buy, you know, in the nineties, you'd buy this monster data center or Colo and spend $10 million, $20 million, $30 million building out your capacity for the next five years, 10 years. Now you would uh, do reserved instances maybe on AWS, or you would do just spot instances to lower your costs because you've got a spiky workload that can tolerate some jitter. And now you're even taking that down to the unit of the 100 millisecond compute slice. So from a developer perspective, this 
makes you care, make, makes you think more about what provides value and what can I outsource to someone else? So mm. do I need to write my own auth? The answer is probably no. Right. Okay. So the, what you're, what you're kind of describing is we have, uh, we've gotten to this point to where we really want to narrow down what we want to write versus what we want to buy. Um, So what are the types of things that, you know, like what are the types of things that we still need to write? I mean, obviously Amazon, for example, has this rich suite of APIs and we, we can piece them to all together. But for every company, there's still going to be some core competency that they're going to write themselves. And so maybe you could like paint a picture for how the, the prototypical serverless application is going to work. Um, you know, if, if I'm going to use a combination of platform as a service products and my own code that I'm writing that is my competitive advantage and that has the business logic for whatever whatever business I'm running, give me a picture for how I set this architecture up and what it looks like and what are the things that I can buy versus the stuff that I'm going to have to build. Yeah. And I mean, the the big answer is there's you would be surprised at what you can buy. And I think that a lot of developers, myself included, have a idea of, oh, it's not that hard to build. And it might not be that hard to build, but you do have a lot of maintenance kind of on the long tail, right? So if you build your own authentication system, yeah, it's easy to build it. But then you also have to be keeping up with, oh, what's the best way to hash passwords this week or this year? Um, Is MD5 broken now? Um, Things of that nature. And so if you look at software, you you spend maybe 25% of your investment building it. And then the other 75% is keeping it a bit able to provide value over its lifespan, right? That's 75% of your costs. And if you can find someone that provides that thing that you would build for say 80 bucks a month. And as a programmer, you're, you know, if you're making, I'm going to say a hundred thousand dollars a year for math. So how, how much time do you have to spend on something every month for it to be worth paying someone else 80 bucks? So you don't have to think about it. And as far as your what your core business logic is, that's going to be the I, – I can't really give a general example of that because there isn't <laughs> – it's kind of the point, sure. right? Okay, okay. Fair, fair enough. Um, I think we should probably talk about more like I guess the technical details of Lambda. So like how, how much do we actually know about what happens when there's a function call to a Lambda service? So let's say I've like stood up a Lambda service to do image processing, for example, and I make a remote function call to that – how much do we know about what actually happens on Amazon's side when we make that call? Um, I mean, as Amazon, you know, Amazon is a company that has a lot of proprietary infrastructure and they play a lot of cards close to the vest. So uh, I doubt that we know an enormous amount, but the, the general flow is, so let's say that you're doing that image processing. So someone uploads a profile picture to S3. Uh, something in S3 notices that and you have a subscription on your Lambda function to that S3 bucket. And so you get an event that comes into Lambda and that hits some Lambda service that knows what code needs to run on that event. And it spins up a container of some kind. And this is all, of course, speculative. I don't work for Amazon. I don't know their secrets. <laughs> and then that event is injected into that container 
that code runs on it, and then the the whatever manipulation happens happens, and then it saves the new thumbnail or whatever out to S3. And if you have a lot of uh, this is sort of empirical observation, but if you have a lambda function that you're running once and then you run it immediately after, it runs a lot faster because there's it's reusing what's called a warm container. And so if you've got some job that only happens every hour, you're going to pay that startup time every time because we, the, by we, I mean just the general community that's been using Lambda have seen that after about 15 minutes, it's likely that that container gets evicted from whatever infrastructure it's on and has to reset up for the next call. Mm-hmm. And when you hit um, certain levels of parallelism, so you've got, um, let's say you have a job that takes 500 milliseconds in Lambda and you're sending it, you know, once a second, then you're just going to be reusing the same container. But if you're sending, you know, 15, 20, 30 of them per second, obviously one container isn't going to handle all of those. And so you can actually see Amazon in in your response time scaling out and adding new containers to handle that parallel load. So your parallelism model is actually pretty cool because it's only per event, as long as you can architect your application that way. Okay, so this is getting into the really interesting conversation of how these things actually work and the hotness, the hotness versus coldness, uh, startup time, you know, qu- response time question is interesting. And the other, yeah. the other interesting, uh, another interesting thing I think about is like the statefulness. So, like, if you want to build a stateful application, for example, I mean, uh, let's say, let's save the statefulness for the next question. But I guess I, one question I want to talk about is like we, you know, image processing, for example. This is like the classic lambda function that we've talked about. Um, where it's just kind of this one-off. You give you give an image, you get it resized, you get the image back. You don't really need to do any statefulness or, or storage or anything. A slightly more complex example would be if I wanted to do some data processing or some storage with my serverless call. So for example, let's say I have a database with some bank transactions and I have a new transaction now where I'm going to deposit $5 and I want to deposit that $5, I want to store the transaction and then I want to get back the sum of all the transactions that have occurred. How would I write that in serverless code? Yeah, so um, disclaimer, if you're running a bank, I probably wouldn't turn to DynamoDB, but I'm going to use that example because it does cover a lot of this. Um, I don't know if DynamoDB has those guarantees anyways. So what you want to do is you can think about that as kind of a transaction log, right? Because you have deposits coming in and... Uh, and, and uh, withdrawals coming out and things of that nature, right? Uh, transfers between accounts. And so you might use a service like Kinesis, which is uh, it's what's called a persistent log. It's similar to Kafka. And so you have a persistent log, and that can hook up as a Lambda event source. So you would have events coming into Kinesis, and then Lambda functions would receive those events and could take action on account balances, and then you retain that log as sort of a, um, you know, compliance and other, you know, transaction trail, like event trail, right? A paper trail. And so you have that happening. So all of these transactions are being logged in Kinesis. And then you have Lambda functions that get these events coming out of the Kinesis stream, and they can make a change to your what you call your persistent store and whether that's DynamoDB or something else that's okay but what you want is a database that has uh, strong guarantees about uh, constraints 
So you would have a strong, you could have a strong constraint that this can never be negative. And so in a relational database, you would express that as, you know, an update balance where account equals this and balance equals this last balance that I saw and otherwise yeah. fail and tell me. And so that would be, that would be how you do, how you do that part is the, the persistence and then you would probably have for a response, you would do the, all, all of this is asynchronous because there aren't extremely strong guarantees about how soon a Lambda function will happen after a Kinesis event that can be delayed up to a second. I think I don't remember the exact, but it can be delayed. And okay. Yeah. Sorry. Do you have so, a question? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as you're talking about this, you're basically saying that, I mean, it very much makes sense in the context of the bank example, but the you're saying that the state is managed in a database, So, which makes a lot of sense for the bank example. But the a, a different example I can think of is like Uber. So I, when I think of Uber, I get in the car after requesting uh, a ride, and I think of the application as managing my session on a server somewhere it's not like the the session gets stored in a database and then every time i make some operation while i'm in the middle of my session like there's a database call i I think of it more like probably a container gets spun up somewhere and the container is a long-running thing until my ride finishes and then maybe the container shuts down or like gmail right and so I'm I'm trying to understand how a serverless application would be built for that type of instance. This thing where you would have more of a stateful type of interaction. Yeah, and so for that, um, a lot of a lot of serverless centers around thicker clients than maybe people are used to. So in that example, you're thinking that all of this state is kind of persisted in some container that's long running somewhere. In a serverless architecture, that's sort of turned around because instead you've got your thick application that's working with these different Lambda functions and there's some trust concerns with that that come with it. Because if you're putting all of the state on the client, they could just open up a JavaScript console and start editing their bank balance and that's terrible. You want to avoid that. So the uh, balance is that... uh, I'm going to give you an example. So I know... uh, a couple of uh, folks that run a startup called A Cloud Guru, and they do video training, basically. And so they have there's concerns over you know who owns what content and is allowed to see it, and do you have a gift card or is there a sale? All of these kinds of things for that. And then also they you know they have a forum, they have a sort of forum where people can make comments and discuss things, have some Q and A. And the way that they the way that they do that is they have all everything payments related is verified in a lambda function against the real data, and everything that gets that everything that's allowed to edit is all in a lambda function. But all reads are cached very aggressively in the in the client. And so for things like say you're buying a course, right? Um, in your browser, there might be a cache saying you have a balance on your account because you had a gift card or something of you know two hundred dollars or what have you. When you go to buy the course, that's checked by a lambda function against the what's called you, the, your single source of truth. And so, when, with with any thick client, you have to have an authoritative source that isn't the client because the client is ultimately tamperable, basically. 
Okay, I love that example. And I want to talk about another example from your blog, serverlesscode.com. This is a blog that is entirely about this new serverless architecture. I encourage people to check it out. You conducted an interview with people that were using Lambda as a proxy. So explain why that would be useful and what does that actually mean to use Lambda as a proxy? So that example is uh, Lambda as a proxy for other services in your architecture. So if you uh, read anything from Sam Newman, he's been talking recently about this, what's called a backends for frontends pattern, which is you have a backend that's closely associated with your, say, mobile app. And the team that controls the mobile app client also controls that what's called a BFF backend for frontend. And the idea there is that, one, what's the lowest latency to your servers? Something in the same data center. And then the other thing is that each team then gets control over the API that they interact with, so they don't have to go to another team, so they get more autonomy. And this particular Lambda as a, particular Lambda as a proxy was using Lambda in... AWS as a way to access all of the all of your services and AWS's services and other APIs that might that you might need and then sending the result back as one big thing. So you might this might sound a lot like uh, GraphQL to you because you're taking a query from the client and then unpacking it into some number some greater number of calls and then performing that on the user's behalf and sending them back the result. That's kind of what Lambda as a proxy Right. Um, okay. And uh, Austin Austin Collins talked about this a lot in our interview because he said that there was an open source project about GraphQL and yeah. serverless and it does make a whole lot of sense. We also had a show about the backends for frontends pattern if listeners are interested there was a show about SoundCloud's architecture. SoundCloud moved to a backends for frontends uh, microservices architecture. Speaking of migrations, what if if people have a pre-existing app and they want to migrate it entirely to a serverless architecture? How hard is that to do, and would that actually make sense? Um, well, it depends on your application a lot, and so I the one thing I would recommend is don't do it all at once. Um, as with any migration, whether you're migrating from a data center to, to the cloud, from one cloud to another cloud, from you know your own Express or Ruby or whatever server to serverless, none of those are a very good idea to do all at once, in my opinion. And so what you can do is look for functionality that would work, that is sort of independent and would work being split across serverless and your normal service. So let's say that you have a some kind of a social thing like uh, like a buffer or you know that talks to a bunch of social media services and has a, like a link shortener and some user accounts and some maybe internal chat or something. You know, it's got a few different parts, and so you would look for a piece that can sort of stand alone, and that might be like the internal discussion part that could stand alone, and you could on your browser client talk to a Lambda-backed or API Gateway-backed API that would provide that discussion functionality for you. Right. This is the classic migration strategy that Netflix has talked about 
where they migrated their job board first to yeah. AWS when they were getting started with AWS. So, you know, the yeah. pattern. I'm certainly not the. Yeah, I'm certainly not the first person to come up with that one. <laughs> right. Um, so, what kind of project? Maybe there's not a good project that would be an example of this, but what? I mean, we've talked about plenty of examples that would be a good fit for serverless computing, where you get all these benefits of, yeah, you know, better cost structuring and so on. What are projects that would not be a good fit, at least today? Uh, let's see. So hard, super hard, anything with very hard latency requirements. If you run a trading platform, I would I would hold off. Um, anything that requires a really long-term connection, like a, uh, if you have, for, and when I say long-term connection, I mean long-term, very persistent, because for example, Lambda has a runtime limit of five minutes. OpenWhisk, I think has something around there, but I think it's tweakable because the server is open source. So you can just run it yourself and do whatever you want. So this is, this is what I was kind of talking about with the Uber example. Well, yeah, Uber, but I Uber. think that. The Uber might not be a great example because you can move all the logic to the client side, yeah. but something where you would need a long-running server side. Yeah, so something like a uh, – if you were, I don't know, WeChat, for example, and you have – I think that – are they the company that has the monster amount of Erlang servers <laughs> that are all running and receiving a zillion connections? That's WhatsApp. Oh, WhatsApp? Okay. Well, well it, maybe so, maybe both. I mean, it's classic. Yeah. You know, every every company that does messaging probably has Erlang. Yeah. So if you've got this big system where you have a lot of long-running connections that all need very low latency, that's probably one of the worst things you could do is to move to something where all the logic is on the client and everything's asynchronous and the latency isn't bounded the same way. Mm. So that would probably be a bad fit. Um, as far as I know, none of these are, uh, certified for anything like Sarbanes-Oxley or, <laughs> um, any, you know, any like HIPAA, all of those kinds of regulate <laughs> right. regulatory environments probably would be a bad idea just because of the idea of, I'm sure that a regulator would, would listen to this, this and be, and just cry that you're running in a container with potentially unknown other clients and the hardware is being switched out all the time, and it's not inside your network perimeter, and they're just crying. So that would probably not be a good fit either. You mentioned the trading platform issue and the latency, like potential latency risks. Are the latency risks because there are potentially lots of hops, or is it more that the cold start problem of needing to potentially spin up a container and not knowing how long it's going to take. I mean, it's the, so there's a few things because it's, you, you've heard of the noisy neighbor problem. Netflix has actually written extensively about this in AWS where you have some other VM on your box that is cause that is having a very high load and using up some resources <laughs> that might not be divided quite as well. Now imagine that, but on the like hundred millisecond order of time where you could just happen to get spun up right while some other container needs to use a lot of IO. And I, there are ways there are ways that you can uh, divide up all of these resources between tenants. But as far as I know, none of them are perfect. And if someone has solved that problem, they're going to be very rich. <laughs> and the cold start problem is another one because you've got to get 
your code and all its dependencies and all of the data it needs to operate on onto, you know, wherever that place is, uh, wh wherever your container physically lives. And so if you have, say, a job that requires multiple gigabytes of data, that's not going to be fast no matter what because it has to get to your container to be operated on. Whereas on a on a physical or on a VM, for example, you can have one job that's chewing through compute, and then the next job is already downloading its uh, its data dependencies. Or if you've got something like Spark or Hadoop, you're sending the compute over to where your gigabytes and terabytes of data are. How does Kubernetes fit into this conversation, or does it fit into this conversation? I mean, we've done so many shows about this, and Kubernetes, the Kubernetes conversation, to me seems almost completely disjoint because it's like, you know, Kubernetes is like, oh, data center as a service, you know, build your own or, you know, build your own high, high performance data center, deploy it to AWS or Google or whatever. And then like the narrative of serverless is like, you don't need a data center anymore. You just think in terms of these Lambda functions now. So well, are these... The narrative isn't you don't need a data center. We all know that <laughs> okay, there are sorry. still servers. <laughs> right. Okay. There are still servers, but these seem like like different paradigms. And obviously, there's you know the Kubernetes thing is so much more mature than this serverless stuff. And when we're talking about serverless, it feels like we're talking kind of about a somewhat distant future, at least from my point of view. Maybe I'm wrong because you're more boots on the ground than I am. Kubernetes is a little more like around the corner slash happening right now. But, you know, presumably at some point in the future, these things are both going to be very developed. So what does the intersection of these two types of technologies look like? Yeah, I mean, first, it's a really big market. There are still, you know, billion dollar companies that own their own data centers and have physical request forms to get a new thing installed on a server. Let's be very clear about that. Um, and so I think that the so Kubernetes is a different angle because it's obviously there are containers um, that you're managing and you're using these uh, replication controllers and pods to manage multi-tenancy. And the idea is that they'll probably be long running or are at least not bounded in the same way that, say, a Lambda function would be. And in serverless, the, but the, the drive to do both of these things is actually coming from a very similar place because the drive is that you want to be able to do your business problem, whether that's, uh, well, it could be anything, but do your business problem without having to do quite so much work to maintain the actual runtime of your system. Because the promise of Kubernetes is that you can add and remove nodes kind of at will, and the scheduler will just figure it out. And so, now the promise of serverless is you can add and remove functions at will, and Amazon or um, Azure or Google will just figure it out. So there is a little bit of a gap between where the responsibilities kind of slice up, but I think that they're coming from a very similar place in terms of motivation. Can you close the gap yourself? Like what if, what if you say, I'm going to spin up a Kubernetes cluster on Google Compute Cloud, and then I'm going to build a serverless framework on top of that so that instead of having the black boxy Amazon container thing happening whenever I make a request, I set up my own serverless rules so that uh, I've just got, you know, I want to make a one-off ad hoc request. Instead of making it to Amazon's 
data centers. I've just got this Kubernetes cluster that I'm paying for, but you know the the rules that I set up, you know, I just make I just get ad hoc requests and I kind of get my own yeah. serverless thing. Would is that something that would make sense? I mean, you you could do that. There's no, there's nothing stopping you, especially since uh, both OpenWhisk and Azure Functions are open source. So you could. I don't know of anyone running these inside of Kubernetes, of course, but you could containerize, in theory, say, OpenWhisk, and then be running it on Kubernetes, and then be adding and removing nodes from Kubernetes kind of at will as your capacity requires, and then using the OpenWhisk APIs to spin your functions up and do those kind of ad hoc things that you were talking about. But if you squint, there are a lot of other things that already look a lot like this. (laughs) Like uh, if you use, um, for example, pig, you're putting in these queries that are then going out and running over this amorphous blob of infrastructure Mm -hmm. through MapReduce. And so if you squint, that already looks a little bit serverless because as a data scientist, you're not setting up Hadoop. You're running some queries, which is, you know, some code that if you squint looks like a function. Um. And I guess, the, I guess my point is that serverless isn't totally new. And if you squint at different things, you see elements of it all over the place. Like if you squint at parse, it looks like serverless. If you squint at um, inside of a big organization, the ability of an individual developer to spin up a VM in the data center for testing and get root on it and do their thing, that looks a little bit like, like the cloud. Obviously, not that much. But if you squint, it does. And then if you squint things that have like a managed platform, so if your company has sort of a base image that gives you J2EE, for example, as a developer, that looks kind of serverless to you. And more importantly, the situation that I described where you build your own serverless architecture on your own deployment of Kubernetes, this is like exactly the reason, this is exactly the the like not built here type of reasoning that, you know, you described earlier where it's like, yeah, you could build your own OAuth system, but why on earth would you do that? Amazon's yeah. offering it to you for, you know, extremely cheap economics. Just do that. Don't don't roll your yeah. own. Um, um, so, you know, you you mentioned that you have been you went to Serverless Conf recently, and that is this big meeting of the minds around this whole serverless uh, movement that's happening. So. Could you tell me, give me a synopsis of the conference? What were the interesting things you saw? What are people talking about? How is this ecosystem moving forward? Tell me about what that conference was like. Yeah, so it was, uh, first off, very hot. The venue was not air-conditioned. Um, it was brutal. But the there were a lot of great talks. Um, we had Hotter than an on-premise data center. Uh, yeah, it was, I think it was 86 or something. It was... It was ridiculous. Servers would melt. But anyways, so we had uh, Tim Wagner from AWS. We had um, the Bluemix team. We had, uh, it was uh, Andreas Nars from the Bluemix team. Uh, Chris Anderson from the Azure Functions team. So pretty much every major vendor was represented there. And then also we had some great, a great combo of kind of user stories and Real talk. So uh, Charity Majors was one of the speakers, and she gave a really good talk about how operations doesn't actually go away. So people that say no ops uh, probably don't have a business, because if you have a business, you have ops. It's important. 
So that was a, that was very good. Uh, Austin Collins spoke. There was uh, an open source panel that uh, was kind of more on the community side about getting people together to build systems that you know might be running on serverless or, or might be running on the serverless framework or in other runtimes. That's more of a generic kind of peopleware discussion. And uh, we got, I think uh, one of the user stories was Spark TV, which has a bunch of Java programmers that have been enterprise programmers forever that now the company is serverless. And so they talked about that migration, which was huge. And uh, Capital One was there. They've started doing some open source projects around security. I think it's uh, Cloud Custodian is one of the projects. So just a lot of people doing a lot of great stuff. Hmm. So you mentioned Austin Collins, and he's a big figure in this entire community. He uh, owns serverless.com, or he's the CEO, I think, of it. Um, and serverless is this framework that is built around these serverless technologies. Explain what serverless does from your point of view and how it fits into this conversation. Yeah, so I'm actually also a contributor to serverless, the framework. Um, and the where it fits is, right now it's focused around AWS. It was originally called JAWS, which was uh, JavaScript, Amazon Web Services, and it had a great shark. I missed that logo. And... So what it does is it provides some nice configuration files that you you put down a, I'm going to say declarative, it's not totally declarative, but you put down a specification of what you need in terms of endpoints. So you put down all of your mapping templates, all of your API endpoints, all of your Lambda functions, what uh, runtime they require, all of your dependencies go in your, you know, your package.json or requirements.txt as the language may be. And it provides a nice way to put all of that into uh, source control. So you can have a bunch of developers working together on a project and having code review over these things that are really usually done in the AWS console. There aren't a lot of, uh, a lot of these services don't have CloudFormation support or didn't until very recently. And so there wasn't a great way to do them in an infrastructure as code kind of way. That's one of the things that I'm working on at Ansible is the cloud modules, so improving that experience. And so what serverless provides is, like I said, the kind of a text format way of doing that, and then a set of best practices around deployment and staging and rollbacks and managing permissions to different Amazon resources. And eventually they're looking to be uh, good at cross-cloud, which is covering you know, Azure Functions and these other options so that you could use the serverless framework to manage across clouds as well. What are the big struggles to getting to that cross-cloud dream? Um, well, there are a lot. Um, <laughs> no matter what anyone says, no matter what technology you're in, whether it's open source, whether it's closed source, whether it's cloud, whether it's an on-premise thing you run yourself, uh, everything has lock-in. And don't believe anyone that tells you there's no lock-in. That's just not true. So the trouble with especially the serverless stuff is, one, it's very new. And so there's uh, some pretty uh, – it's you know changing quickly in terms of both the best practices that are sort of agreed on in the community as well as the APIs that are available from different providers. Um, and then the abstraction level is different. So like I mentioned, that Azure Functions example where they have 
a file handle way of exposing both Dropbox and Google Drive and all these other different file sources. That's not really something you can move across clouds yet at this time because no one else has an equivalent functionality. And so the hard part is abstracting away that cloud-specific stuff into something else and having a configuration layer that can translate them well. Because things like uh, an AWS IAM policy, which is their access management, it's uh, basically ACLs for all of the cloud resources. And that's not going to translate over to Azure no matter how hard you massage it with uh, whatever transformation technology you have. So someone's going to have to write both, and you have to figure out a way to get them to write both and maintain them, you know? How open is Amazon to this type of interoperability? Are they encouraging it? Are they helping with things like serverless? Um, well, I can't really speak to that because they don't, they don't talk to me about it, but... <laughs> Um, at serverless conf, one thing they did announce is a something called flourish, which is a, um, tool for runtime application model. And, uh, so I'm not sure what that really means. <laughs> um, and it's kind of hard to tell because they just said it will be on GitHub and that doesn't really. And so I. I was at I was at the the talk where they announced it, and I left a little bit confused about what it actually was. But as far as I can tell, they are going to release it soon, and so all of this can probably change. But the idea is that it's a way where you can go from designing your API to building it and like giving you know putting the code in the right places, and then having it handle deployment and upgrades and things of that nature. So. There's some similarity in that description you noticed with the serverless framework. And one of the things that I think Tim Wagner said during the talk was that since it's open, they're open to other vendors. But what that means to me is it's open and you could, but whether or not like they'll accept pull requests that make it run equally well on everything, I don't really know. Because a lot of open source is less about code and more about attitude. Um, and that was actually my whole talk at Serverless Conf was about how to make your project actually welcoming to contributors. Oh, um, fascinating. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so it's going to be online in about two weeks. I'll, I, I think, I mean, if you can update the show notes when that comes out, I'll give you the link so that that can sure. just get attached. But the slides and resources that I do have are at serverless, uh, oss.serverless.zone. Um, because I love top level domain, the new top level domains. Uh, it's great. <laughs> Me too. So the uh, and so my talk was about how to build welcoming projects, and that covered licensing and some kind of legalese about making sure that your project is really open to being used by other companies commercially or not, and being explicit about dual licensing and things of that nature. And then pro how you can put together an open process so people can actually see what you're doing understand it and then get their change in and be happy being contributors and having a good on-ramp for them. And, um, I've, you know, I've worked on OpenStack and now work on Ansible. And I think they both do a really good job of kind of bringing new contributors in, uh, OpenStack has a program called outreachy, which, uh, brings people in for paid summer internships. And we've had several of those people get hired and then stay on as contributors to whatever project they interned on. And that's been awesome. 
So that and so and then the last thing in my talk was just about diversity and being as inclusive as possible to people from different backgrounds and uh, different, you know, various disadvantaged groups. Um, I am a white guy and I'm 25, so I'm not the most qualified person, but I do think it's important to try. So that was pretty much my whole talk is just about the ways that you can encourage people to contribute to your project and not just like download and then maybe open a drive-by issue. Right. That's a, uh, that's a very important um, set of issues to be talking about. So I guess I want to close off by just getting your perspective on how this changes business models in the future. I mean, we, you know, containers have been transformative. AWS has been transformative. We've seen that, Every time the fundamental layer of compute power changes, at first it looks like weird and like, why would you want to do this? Who's going to do this? There's no way people are going to do this. And then gradually over time, there's like a sea change and people adopt it. And it's like, oh my goodness, this changes how we can do everything. It changes cost models. It makes new businesses possible. That happened with AWS. It happened with Docker. Yeah seems like it's going to happen with serverless maybe or maybe you could touch on that like uh, you know to what degree is this going to be like a fundamental change um i don't think it's as fundamental but it is a mindset change because uh the the folks that i was talking about earlier that have that video training company they were saying that they since they run they have zero servers um the only machines they manage are like their dev laptops which is cool so the way that they deliver courses, since everything is pay per use, um, S3 is pay per bit of storage, uh, CloudFront is pay per byte delivered, Lambda is pay per execution, um, all of these things, they're only ever charged when people are actually getting value out of their service. And so that drastically changes how your margins work. And I think of it as more of an extension of sort of how uh, pay as you go for for the cloud worked, but now it's just that, but even more so. And so I think that there are a lot of business models that will be profitable now that might not have been in the past, which is kind of cool. That's great. Well, cool. Um, Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a really, really cool conversation. Um, I'm really happy to have had you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah. Um, like I mentioned, so the talk is talk stuff is on oss.serverless.zone and then my website serverlesscode.com and my email's on there so if folks have any questions uh they can find me absolutely all right well people should go check that out <laughs>